Okay, so good morning and welcome to another audio discussion of the course Understanding the Self. So last time we tackled about the um, philosophical perspective of the self. Way back before, I described understanding the self as chop suey or halo-halo. Because you need to mix different, let's say, ingredients and then put them all together to come up with a great dish or a great dessert. And so is with the understanding of the self. We're done with philosophical of the self, and right now we'll be tackling the sociological perspective of the self or the sociology. So that, of course, as we go further, okay, things about the self becomes clearer and, let's say, lead to more understanding of the self. So the next topic or the next pocket is very relatable because we are in it. We are in a society. Of course, we're not, let's say, in, in Venus or in Mars or Mercury, but we are in Earth. And of course, we, we made this term society. And what is society? Society is a large or a group of people who live in a defined territory. They also share the same culture. A society also consists of institutions, shared beliefs, cultural ideas, shared political authority. But how is a society constructed in the first place? So, of course, we need to discuss that so that at the end of the packet, we will go into have a clear understanding of the self or how the society impact the self. So, in a way, I know you can relate or Something is already uh, playing in, in your mind on how the society impact the self or affect the self. So let's start with Peter Berger and Thomas Luckman, author The Social Construction of Reality. In this book, they stress that society is made through habitualization. And according to them, society is a habit. Habitualization happens when an action that is repeated often becomes cast into a pattern. So, when we talk about habit, uh, habitualization, okay, it is something to do with a repeated pattern. And it is what? Consistent. And this consistency, okay, uh, becomes part of habitualization. Now, this term is also used in clinical psychology, okay? Let's say, for example, um, a person who's not using drug before, but because of sleeping, um, let's say, problem, he becomes habituated with the drug. Or in short, he can't live without the drug or he can't sleep without the drug. Now, we're just going to put that in a large context, in a large scale. Habitualization okay, and in people or in society. Before we are born, of course, or um, before we, we come to this place, to this society, okay, society is already formed. It has its, let's say, own culture, perspective, philosophies, ideologies, okay, and then so on and so forth. And it, it's probably, we became part of it, and we experience it. It's either we adapt or we modify 
the society. Okay? Now, one thing that uh, I really, let's say, hate when coming into the society is, you know, the ranking in terms of academics. Right? Way back before, okay, when I was in grade one, up to college, or in high school, rather, we have this, let's say, you are cream of the crap, or cream of, let's say, the top, okay? You're the top one, top two, top three, four, and five, the my first honorable mention, and then so and so forth. Now, the society probably, in that kind of ranking system, promotes competition, promotes, let's say, crab mentality, promotes that you need to, to be better than the other student instead of be better than yourself, right? Because the gauge, probably, it's not actually your performance, but how you will be, let's say, get better to the other person or other student, okay? That's the society we live in before. But right now, I like the idea that we have this, let's say, with honor, with highest honor, and then so on and so forth. Which means, okay, which means students will able to, let's say, compete to themselves instead of the students. Okay? So you, you're able to, let's say, be better because you want to, you know, to be better with your last performance or with, with, with your, let's say, former grade. And every one of you can be, let's say, with highest honor or with high honor and the likes, right? So everybody in the class can, can get that rank, okay? Or be labeled in that specific, let's say, rank, unlike before. So it is, let's say, being modified. And right now, we are immersing or we immerse ourselves with that kind of, let's say, habit, okay? And then next year or with the coming years ahead of us, okay, we will be, let's say, habituated with this kind of society that we don't longer or we need we don't need actually to compare ourselves with others okay in terms of academics but rather we, we just need to compare ourselves with our last performance and that is let's say kind of liberating okay it minimizes competition it minimizes crab mentality and then the likes and then Aren't you glad about that change, right? Also, when you're in college, it's the same. We have um, cum laude, magna cum laude, and we have summa cum laude. Now, what I really like about it is that everyone, everyone, of course, can be cum laude, magna, and summa. It depends on your performance. So, you know, we diminish the idea of competition. And if I'm not mistaken, there's a school in, in, I don't know if that is in Cebu or in Mindanao, that actually all of them graduated with honors. Okay? So it's, it's a nice thing. It's a nice thing having, you know, um, having a same motive, the same goal without competing with one another. Okay? Because all of you can get to that, let's say, level. Okay? Without competition, without, let's say, comparing your ranks or your numbers to one another. So that is a good thing. And this is the time that we actually immersing ourselves with that kind of system. 
parents, teachers, and most especially students. Unlike before, diba? I still remember in elementary, some parents of my classmates will go in to give chocolates to the teacher, will go in to donate something, so that in a way, it will increase their grade, and then eventually, it will increase their rank. Okay? Yeah. So, um, those are probably experiences way back before, but right now, we are into the society, okay, and we are adapting or trying our best to habituate with that kind of situation, okay? Another example of um, habituation or um, habit realization is the new normal or the pandemic, right? Way back before, we can move freely, we can go wherever we want, okay? We can travel, we can go to the mall, okay, without restriction, without checking your temperature, and then so on and so forth. But right now, we are in the face of time that we are embracing and trying our best to be habituated with the present situation. Of course, because the pandemic is quite contagious and it can kill many people. Okay? So, this is probably adjusting. This is probably a phase of, uh, let's say, adjustment for everyone. And we're trying to, to be immersed and to um, habituated with, with that. So society is like that. Society is full of a lot of, let's say, habits, okay? Not, not just in the new pandemic or in academics, but everything. And form them all together, it becomes a society. We, we have, let's say, habitualization in religion. We have habitualization in terms of, let's say, health. We have habitualization in terms of entertainment. We have habitualization in terms of professional with the industry, economics, psychology, teaching, and then so on and so forth. And it is being passed from one generation to another generation. And it becomes consistent. But of course, from time to time, it is being modified, okay? But it is a long, long process. It's a long process, okay? So imagine that uh, the old normal is that we're living our life in that old normal for centuries. And then comes the new normal, okay? And then we're experiencing it for six months. And the adjustment and the habituation process is killing us, especially our mental health. Because, of course, you cannot hug someone. You cannot, you know, holding to hold the hands of your loved one, and then so and so forth, okay? So there's a lot of uh, restriction, okay? So once again, society is full of many or let's say numerous um, habitualization and then it is being formed together, then it makes the society. And furthermore, according to the um, module, habitualization sees society as something that was created or already created before us, as I have mentioned. But of course, it is also subjected in terms of change. If you're going to go to clinical psychology, okay, when you are, let's say, habituated with a particular behavior, let's say, for example, drug addiction, of course, you can change that. You can be better or, let's say, be detached with that addiction. But, but once again, 
the process is very difficult. It will take months, years, or sometimes a lifetime, diba? To, to change that kind of habituation. But if you're going to ask me, it is really possible. So in short, there are some, let's say, habits in the society that we can change. Or let's say, habitualization in the society that is, of course, subjected in terms of modification. But it takes a long, long process. Okay? Thomas, another sociologist, uh, constructed the Thomas Theorem. This theorem states, if men define situations as real, they are real in their consequences. This means that people can be subjected in their construction of reality despite the objective reality. Okay? So, it is really evident and resounding right now. Okay? We can view society or reality subjectively. Okay? So, imagine, let's say, if we have 8 or 10 billion population, therefore, we have, let's say, 10 billion social constructs. Okay? And the most dominant or repeated, let's say, social construct are the one that is being, let's say, performed also by the society. So imagine that. It's, it's kind of, let's say, the reality is how it's being perceived by another person. Okay? That there's a possibility that the way you perceive the society is not actually the reality. Okay? And, it, and it's a sad thing. Okay? That's why um, right now, okay, that's why right now we have um, a lot of criminals. We have, let's say, these people who are deviated in the norms, okay? Some people are killing without any hesitation and then the likes, okay? Now, there's a normal example. I mean, normal example is that you can... Uh, see this in a normal situation, okay? A student who is often called or labeled as slow, stupid, or hard-headed may live up to those words even uh, though those are not part of his or her character, okay? So as I have said, that it's something to do with that is not re the reality, but it is because other people talk to you like this, okay? Then you embrace those words, you embrace those, let's say, opinions, whether it is not actually true in your part, okay? Let's go back to the criminals. Actually, okay, so again, um, let's have a concrete example. Are you familiar with Joker, the film, right? That's one of my favorite films. Now, if you're going to notice, Joker is actually a good individual. He's sweet, caring hardworking, and then the likes. But what changed him at the end of the day, at the end of the film, that made him, let's say, liberated from everything or existentially, let's say, liberated? Okay? That make him um, psychopath, sociopath, or deviated from the norms? Who made it? Okay? The huge factor is none other than the society. Okay? His being, let's say, locked upon, okay, bullied, okay, power tripping, 
diba, a mention like this or like that, that is not actually not him. Okay? And another thing, his mother, okay, uh, kept really a secret. And when uh, the truth, let's say, prevails, boom. That's the last factor that really changed him. And that's why Joker, let's say, become sociopath and psychopath. And I do believe that situation goes out to all, let's say, the criminals or to all people who say that they deviated from the law. They're probably, let's say, actually good. They're actually, let's say, honest and caring. But because of, let's say, things in the society, okay, that changed them in a bit. Now, our issue here is not your volition. It's not, let's say, the way you think. But what we're trying to say here is that how the society can influence you that even a thing that is not true can be true at the end of the day. And it goes out to you guys, okay? I know a lot of times that many people or society are trying to label things about you that is, of course, full of negative negativities, lies, or actually things that are not um, helpful, okay? But try to, to validate them. Are they true? Are they really, let's say, beneficial? Is it really factual? And then so and so forth. Okay? Let's say, for example, the word beauty or attractiveness. People will go on to label to you, you're not beautiful. Okay? You're not attractive. But if you're going to validate, if you're going to reconstruct or reframe their words, is it actually true? Well, in fact, beauty is subjective. And if a thing is subjective, therefore, okay, there is no primary objection. Can you follow? Therefore, no one will going to say that this is beautiful. This is uh, attractiveness. No one will able to, to say that. Because actually, okay, actually beauty is really subjective. And beauty and people defines beauty in a lot of things, in a lot of words. Okay? Name it. And in South Korea, beautiful is, of course, okay, you have a uh, beautiful skin, glowing skin, you're so, let's say, makinis, okay? And then you have no pores, and then so and so forth. If you go to other country, European countries, if you, let's say, in terms of having weight, okay, you, you're beautiful. Okay, in African country, if, if you're black, you're stunning. And then so and so forth. Because beauty is it's very, let's say, subjective. And if a person will go into label that you're not beautiful and you're not attractive, that is in his or her opinion. But it is not actually true. Because the way you are, just the way you are, you are already beautiful. Because no one will be able to replace you in this world. You are, let's say, peculiar. You are unique. And the way that God put you all together, 
is you and that is beautiful. Okay? So I'm telling you, everyone, everyone is beautiful. But not everyone has this, let's say, soundful mind, okay, to really appreciate that they are actually beautiful. Why? Because of the society. And if you're going to have a strong mind and you're going to reconstruct, okay, try to ask, is that true? Okay? That's why many people right now are not actually embracing their true selves, especially their appearance. Why? Because the media is having this kind of, let's say, criteria of beauty. We have the Miss Universe. We have, let's say, the Mr. Universe in other pageants. When you go to the magazine, they have this standard of beauty. But that is just a standard. And beauty actually is once again very subjective. So who cares? Right? It's actually who, who you really are. Okay? Who can validate yourself? Your attractiveness, your beauty, your, your worth, and then so on and so forth. Okay? And when we talk about with, with beauty, it is actually holistic. Not just your physical appearance, but it could be with your intelligence, your wit, the way you joke, your practical jokes, right? You're, you're being intrapersonal, you're being interpersonal, you're mon multiple intelligence, and then so and so forth. Okay? And I cannot judge you if you are beautiful or not. Okay? If you're attractive or not. I cannot say that. Because once again, it's, it's objective. But you're the one who can say, okay, that you're beautiful or not. And if we're going to look closely, actually, in our own way, in our peculiar way, okay, we are all uniquely beautiful. I'm certain of that. I'm very certain. The concept is defined by Robert A. K. Merton, a sociologist, as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, self-fulfilling prophecy, you can also see this in psychology, to be specific in uh, social um, psychology. This means that even a false idea can become true. And there's a lot of uh, researchers, a lot of thesis and dissertation that already studied this self-fulfilling prophecy. And also, you can see this also in uh, industrial um, psychology, okay? Imagine that for some reason, depositor of a bank falsely feared that their bank is soon to be bankrupt because of that they eventually decided to pull out their money. Thus is what? The fulfilling uh, prophecy. But actually, let's say the bank is not actually bankrupt. But it became, let's say, bankrupt or it becomes bankrupt because many people pull out their, uh, let's say, money. But in the first place, actually, they're not in bankruptcy. Okay, but it is because many people told or falsely feared that the bank will be, let's say, soon to be bankrupt, they pull out their money um, immediately. Okay, so let's just put that uh, self-fulfilling prophecy in, in every context.
let's use the example in mental health. Let's say, for example, the people suffering from any psychological disorder. The society will label them that they are dysfunctional, they have, let's say, no purpose, they can probably contribute to the growth of the economy or the society, and then so and so forth. That's the, uh, let's say, the self-fulfilling prophecy. And people who are suffering from psychological disorder can actually believe that the society is right. They are right. I'm suffering from depression. I'm su suffering from bipolar. Who can accept me? Okay? And then so on and so forth. And then eventually, that self-prophecy becomes true to oneself. That the person who's suffering from mental disorder is, is actually dysfunctional. But if you're going to look closely, that is not actually true. Because there's a lot of people in the world that were suffering from psychological disorder, but they became successful. People who are suffering from learning uh, disorder, okay? Um, let's say reading disorder, mathematic disorder, autism, depression, and then so on and so forth. But they actually succeeded in life. Okay? Another thing, how about the elderly? Okay? So people will view, or the society will, will help us view that elderly are, are dysfunctional. They have no, let's say, um, effect in terms of economic growth. They have no function. Okay? They, they're probably staying in, in, in the home, waiting for their death and dying, and then so on and so forth. But there is a chance, there is a high chance that if you are an elderly, you can also feel the same way. Oh, the society is telling me that I'm like this, I'm like that, and then so on and so forth. If you're going to watch films, TV, okay, what is the, the role of the elders there? Just, um, you know, um, staying in the home, okay? Um, just, you know, um, bedridden, okay? And not going anything productive things at all. And there is a chance that many elderly will be able to feel the same way. Especially if they're suffering from a physical illness. Okay? And then, when the society imparts them to them, to, to the senior citizen, I mean, and they believe it, it becomes a what? A self-fulfilling prophecy. But is that really true? I conducted a qualitative research. This is one of my, you know, favorite part of, of my PhD journey. Um, I made this um, qualitative research that is called as Katatagan sa Kalsada, a phenomenological study among working elders in the streets of Manila. In short, these, these are, let's say, homeless senior citizen who's working, and at the same time, they're living in the streets of Manila. Okay, in the vicinity of FEU, UST, in Recto, in Quiapo, there. Uh, I interview, let's say, 20 senior citizens. And I'm actually shocked. Because my first perception is that they are nakakaawa, they're, let's say, just, you know, 
asking for limos, and then so and so forth. But actually, they are not. They're trying their very best to survive and doing different jobs. And that makes them useful and having integrity and self-worth. And you know what? When I'm going to, to ask them about things, about their life, about their, their let's say, um, disposition in life, or their emotional health, or let's say, mental health, they're actually, let's say, good. They are happy, they are resilient, they are strong, they are brave, they are very tenacious, and then so and so forth. So sometimes we need to, to validate whether self-fulfilling prophecy is really true or not. But of course, many times, or a lot of times, okay, self-prophecy is not really true. So I'm, I'm suggesting you, okay, try to, to filter things around you, okay? I know you're very young, but you're actually very exposed in terms of media, in terms of social media. In terms of, let's say, a lot of books, a lot of, let's say, materials that could actually, okay, stimulate self-fulfilling prophecy. And then at the end of the day, you're going to believe that that is actually true. Well, in, in reality, it is not. It is far from the truth. Okay? Now, as a capitalist, let's say, country... The society will tell us that you need to have a car, you need to be, let's say, rich, okay? You need to have a six-digit to seven-digit salary, you need to travel local and abroad, you have up a lot of jewelries, you look hella fine with your dress, with your bags, with your clothes, and then the likes. And then they will label it as what? Success. They construct things in that manner. And then you tend to compare yourself with that. The parameters of success. You analyze, you synthesize. I have no car. I'm not rich. I can't even travel local. I do not have fine jewelry. I do not have, let's say, good clothes, signature clothes, or bags, and then so on and so forth. Now, what are you going to say? You're not successful? You better think twice. Now, one thing that I really appreciate about the pandemic is the plethora of profound, let's say, realizations and impact that sometimes in life success trims down to to just being content with life okay that actually at, at what we have we've been experiencing so far is that actually contentment should be the new status symbol not cars not, not, let's say, money, not wealth, not being famous, okay? Not having a, 
a lot or a bunch of followers or likes in the social media, and then so and so forth. But sometimes, it all boils down to just being content with what you have, with, with what you accomplish, okay? You're just having, let's say, a fine house, you have your family, you can eat thrice, thrice a day or four times a day, you're healthy, and that suffice. And I can tell you sometimes that you're already successful. That's why I really like Jim Curry, right? Jim Curry said that I hope all people will be able to be, let's say, experienced, okay, having a lot of money or fame. So that they will able to internalize that those things are not the parameters of success. But who is Jim Curry? Is he legit to say that? Of course. He's famous. He's good looking. He can do anything. Have a lot of money. Cars. Okay? Blockbuster films. And so on and so forth. But actually, okay, he, he conveyed at the end of the day that all these things are actually what? Vanities. You know what? Sometimes we've heard a lot of news about celebrities, famous people that committed suicide. But on the back of our mind, we can say that they're actually complete. They're actually successful. They have, let's say, a lot of everything. But why did they do that? Maybe we can think that that's not actually the parameter of success, that society wants to imprint in our hearts, and in our mind. And we should refrain the way we think so that we're not able to commit self-fulfilling prophecy that will lead to, let's say, a life without satisfaction and a life that is not fully well-lived. Okay? Now, the people who construct society play different roles and statuses. People have many types of behavior in their daily lives, and this has become they have different roles to play. Roles are patterns of behavior that are identified in others that represent their social status. Okay, of course, it's, this is inevitable part of our society. Status, on the other hand, is the responsibilities and benefits a person experiences based on their rank and role in society. Of course, there's a perks in terms of having these statuses, but at the same time, it is also detrimental. Having a society with a lot of ranks and statuses. Now, there are two kinds of status, ascribed and achieved. Ascribed, of course, these are, let's say, the default. You're a daughter, elderly, person or a male a default label well let's say on the contrary the achieved statuses are those um, obtained by choices by volition or by hard work such as you became a doctor a lawyer a millionaire a college dropout a criminal and then so and so forth okay yeah now the perks of having, let's say, ranks and statuses is that your role becomes um, clear. You know what is your part in the society. Okay? That's the, that's the good thing about it. 
What I really don't like about this one is that we tend to discriminate people in terms of their rank and their statuses. Let me give you my, let's say, personal experience. I still remember I'm in UST and this happened around January or February this year before the pandemic. I'm fixing the, the requirements for my dissertation. Okay. Waitress, waitress. It, an ankas driver, a grab delivery boy. Okay. They're actually kind. They're actually polite. On the other end of spectrum, there is a girl that's having doctoral degree in language. Rude. She's rude. She's not nice, I'm telling you. But in the eyes of society, who's more favorable? A person who's doing the delivery or a person who's, you know, having a PhD in language or doctor in language? Of course, the one that is um, more favorable is the one as having an excellent academic background. But is it actually true? I don't think so. People tend to look on the accomplishment, educational background, how many digits did you have, the style of your house, the cars, and then so on and so forth. But actually, those things are just superficial. Right? When you die, you cannot bring them all. The titles after, after your name, the ranks, your high salary, the things that you founded in this world, they will all vanish. You cannot bring that to heaven or you cannot bring that to hell. But still, whether we know these facts, we still do not change our perception about these. Let's say, for example, the farmers. Many people, okay, look down to, 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 to farmers. Why? Because, of course, they're just under the scratching head of the sun, okay? They do manual labor, and then so on and so forth. And the salary is low. But if we're going to look closely, how are we going to eat rice without farmers? Right? Another thing, the fishermen. Or let's say the people who's doing botibakal and then the likes. We tend to look down on them. But actually, that is their the, the role. And without them, the society will not exist harmoniously or there will be, let's say, disruption in, in the society or in the environment. What I'm trying to say is that regardless of your rank, regardless of your statuses, regardless of, let's say, your belief, regardless of what you have in life, we are all equal. And we shouldn't regard, okay, one status or one rank higher than the other. And self-worth 
or your worth in the society is not based on that. I hope you're, you're, you're listening. I hope that, in a way, you do agree with, with these perceptions. Okay? Now, we are in the culture that if you're a manager, let's say, in a fast food chain, or you're doing the body bakal, the, the, the more favorable one is the one who's, you know, a manager in, in the fast food chain. Because what? Air-conditioned, right? There's, let's say, prestige. The brand is famous and then the likes. But if you're going to compare, if you're going to compare the uh, salary, okay, baka mas mataas pa yung salary na nagbobotibakal. And if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, I knew someone, her salary as a manager in a fast food chain is around 20000 And a person who's doing a botibakal in a month, okay, can have 20 plus thousand or 30000 in a month. Imagine, which means the one who's doing botibakal has more salary than a manager in, let's say, in a fast food chain. And Filipinos tend to be like that. Okay? Wow, he's a doctor. He's, a, he's an, let's say, an attorney, and then so on and so forth. And we tend to be amazed by those ranks and statuses. But actually, okay, a person who's doing body bakal, I'm amazed by their life. A security guard who's having a night shift, it's actually amazing because that's difficult. I cannot do that. A person who's probably in the call center, the night shift, doing the night shift, it's so hard. It's very detrimental to their health. But they're doing it. Okay? They're doing it so that the society can move forward. And it's nice. It's amazing. It's amazing equivalently with the person who's having, let's say, a dignified job. Okay, so I hope that in a bit or in in a long run, okay, Filipinos will able to internalize that ranks and statuses are not that let's say a pretty let's say nice thing compared to let's say other jobs. Okay. To add more, a person can be associated with a number of roles and statuses, and they are not bound to only one, and I know we experience that, okay? And even a single status, such as employee, has a complex role set or array or roles attached to it. Some people experience that we call role strain. Now, this happens, okay, when there is too much required from a single role, okay? Let me tell you an example. Okay, let me use myself, okay? Now, right now, I'm teaching, let's say, in BPSU, and I'm handling eight students. Aside from that is, I'm a student like you, okay? As I have said, I'm teaching up, or 
I'm taking up um, my doctoral degree in clinical psychology at USD. Okay? And not just that, I'm also a part-time lecturer in a review center for psychometrician. Okay? And not just that, but I also have this part-time job to talk in, in seminars, symposium, okay, and, and let's say educational institutions. I can be a, a, a lecturer, okay, especially in, in seminar, okay? And not just that, but also I'm a volunteer with um, Mental Hospital Mariveles and also in um, Department of Justice in Parole and Probation Office. I'm also a volunteer in um, Department of Education, Bataan. I'm also part of the Philippine Army Reservist. So I'm a surgeon in, in um, Philippine Army. Okay? And not just that, but also I'm a breadwinner. Okay? And I'm a son. Okay? And I'm trying my best to, to work hard for the family to bring goods, to bring money, okay? And the usual breadwinner, okay? And I also attended in a congregation and in, in a church where I also have my ministry, okay? And each role is, is very complex, okay? And then put them all together, okay? And then, sometimes, one or more roles are contradictory. Or, let's say, you're going to experience conflict. Okay? And then the likes. I, I still remember um, one time, okay, I need to work in BPSU, okay, from Monday. Okay, let's say Monday 8 to 5, Tuesday, okay, I need to teach from 8 a.m., no, no, 7.30 to 12 p.m., and then I need to, you know, uh, go to terminal ng Genesis, okay, then I'll also take my lunch in, in Genesis sometimes, okay, so... I'll be traveling, going to Manila, okay? So that will take four hours from Bataan to UST. Actually, it's because of the, the traffic, okay? Because I have my 6 p.m. class in, in UST. And then our class will, will be finished by 9 p.m. And then right after that, okay, I need to go back to Bataan because I have a Wednesday class by 9 a.m. No, no, 8 a.m., okay? So, I'll be home by, let's say, Wednesday, 1 a.m., and then, of course, I need to, you know, to sleep and prepare for my 8 a.m. class, and it's just the same. I'm going to teach on Wednesday from 8 to 5, and then I'm going to teach on Thursday by um, 8 to 5, and then right after that, Saturday. Okay, I'll be going to UST by um, around 5 a.m. because I have my 8 a.m. class up to 5 p.m. 
And then right after that, okay, 5 p.m., you're going to go to um, Avenida, okay, to, to ride a bus. And you're going to see a pile of people, you know, falling in line because everybody wants to go home during Saturday, especially the students. Okay? And then I'll be home by around 12 by Saturday. Okay? And then Sunday is family day and church day. So you need to go to church and you're going to stay there by 9 a.m. up to 6 p.m. or sometimes up to 9 a.m. And then the same routine. Okay? And then if you're going to, to notice my, my schedule every week, there's a lot of, let's say, conflict. There's a lot of additional work. There's a lot of, let's say, surprising tasks that you, you, you're not probably able to anticipate. Okay? And once you're able to change the schedule and you're going to add additional tasks, okay, your schedule throughout the week will be affected. Okay? And that is probably a, a role strain, a role conflict, perhaps. Okay? And a lot of people wearing different status, wearing different hats, where we're able to experience a lot of, of these things. Okay. Right now, you're not able to, to experience that because you're uh, studying. Okay. I mean, you're, you're dependent on your parents. Okay. You're not the breadwinner. But once you have your job, I'm telling you, okay, rain or shine, okay, regardless of the situation, you need to go to work. And not just that, not just that. What if you're also taking your master's degree or you're taking law or you're taking your PhD degree? Wow, that's another task. And that is so difficult, especially when you're Bataan and you're going to study in Manila. It's very difficult, okay? And you're going to experience a lot of role constraint, especially, especially, if you also have your own, what, child or children, it's very hard. It's very demanding. And you're the breadwinner, mm, you're going to experience a lot of role conflict. And you know what? This is very common among people in the first world country, especially when you go to the United States, especially when you go to New York. People are having, let's say, two to three jobs a day. And some of them are even go to the grad school and graduate school. Imagine that. Okay? So sometimes that's we, we experience when we have this ascribe and achieve, let's say, um, status or rank. Of course, we cannot poke through a person's head and analyze what role they are playing. Of course, we cannot do that. But we can only observe is the behavior or the role performance. Or I should say, I advise, you can also reflect to your own selves. What are your roles? Okay? And how do you manage it? What are the role strains or the conflict that you experience? Reflect from that. Okay? Yeah. Irving Goffman, another sociologist, stated that people are like actors on a stage. His theory called dramaturgy states that people use impression management to present themselves to others as they hope to be perceived. Okay? Yes, especially if you're being observed by a lot of people, we cannot really say that what your behavior, okay, or the way you convey your behavior is really genuine or let's say uh, truthful. Okay? Because when you present yourself, we always present ourselves in an ideal manner or in a good manner. Of course, 
if you're not able to do that, your society, your society or our society, okay, will give us this definition or label. And of course, we do not have, uh, we do not want to, to obtain a bad reputation or a bad label. So each situation is a different scene and people play different roles depending on who is there. Uh, I know you can relate to this, okay? We, we, we play a role depending on who is there. Have you realized this? Our behavior is totally different from school and our home. In our school, we will always, okay, kulang na lang, parang, di ba? Okay, halikan mo yung paanong teacher mo, right? Good morning, sir. Good morning, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, sir. Okay, and then the likes. But if you're in your own home, you cannot treat your parents like that, okay? In your classmates, sometimes you can be polite. You can be happy. You can be, let's say, respectful. But to your siblings, it's a different story. But why there's a difference between that? What is the, let's say, psychological implication or dynamics behind that? Now, maybe, maybe it is because the family or our family can accept the real us. Even our shadow, our weakness, our frailties can be accepted by our family. That's why we can show who we really are. But outside our family or the society, okay, we cannot do that. Okay? That's why we play or we, we wear a mask. And we wear this mask depends on the situation. That's why if you want to find out who is the real person, what is, let's say, his real behavior, okay? Mm -hmm. Go to their house or watch the person alone and then you can see who the person is really are. Like another example, okay, the actors and actress in the TV, television, you can see them as ganito, ganyan, ideal, perfect, okay? Something that you, you really want to idolize or you want to become in the future. But when there's no, let's say, flashes of camera, okay, there's no reporter, there's no other people, what do you think? Are they able to convey the same behavior? Well, I don't think so. Okay? So that's dramaturgy from Goldman. Okay? That's why he said, like actors on a stage. Okay, so let's start with the second part. So, another proponent in the names of Charles Cooley's Looking Glass Self. So, Cooley said that we based our image on what we think other people see. That's why I know you can relate that sometimes we tend to ask others about ourselves. Okay, in terms of our attitude, behavior. And another example would be the Johari's window. From time to time, we tend to validate ourselves that um, in accordance with the other's perception and, and beliefs towards uh, the self of the others, okay? So he believes that we base our sense of self 
on the imagined perception of us of others and how they would react to us. He concluded that people's reaction to us is like a mirror and we which we are reflected. Okay? So we tend to see the self into the realm, okay, of others. Now, it is also um, very prominent in, in virtual identity or let's say in the social media. We tend to construct ourselves or we tend to, let's say, reconstruct ourselves from time to time depending on, let's say, the likes, the status, the, the comments, the reactions that we, let's say, gain from others. Okay? So let's say, for example, you post this particular um, post in uh, social media and it gained a lot of likes. Okay? So you are being uh, conditioned that you need to do another thing or another situation that has something to do with the post, okay, that gains a lot of like, and then so and so forth. So in a way, there's a relation to that, okay? It is not just the um, visual interaction that we ask others, but also the new technology or the social media. In Twitter, okay, in Instagram, okay, name it. Unconsciously, we're not aware of that, but we're able to discover ourselves in the feedback of others. And people also go through the process of um, socialization. And it's the process wherein people are taught to be proficient members of society. And it is being, let's say, differentiated from socializing. Now, the difference between socialization and socializing is easy. Socialization added something to do with, let's say, the process, a never-ending process, whereby we're able to um, discover ourselves, our identity, our attributes, and anything that has something to do with the self. While socializing is the action, okay, that occurs with others. And socialization, of course, is composed of what? Socializing. Okay, socializing with parents, with peers, with teachers, with our family, with strangers, okay, and then so on and so forth. And it could be the virtual socializing, right? Right now, you can talk to, to people, you can chat to people that you barely don't know. So in a way, that's socializing. Now, there are also different theories on how we become, let's say, socialized. So George Herbert Mead proposed three um, stages. So the first stage is imitation. So during this stage, the children replicate the actions of other people surrounding them, especially the parents. Okay? And according to Mead and to some, let's say, uh, references, the ages from birth up to two years old. So... The second stage is called the play stage. So in this stage, children take on the roles that other people around them have like, let's say, their parents or grown-ups. So they're able to, let's say, in a way, apply the things in the stage one into the stage two. While the stage, stage three, which is labeled as generalized other, 
it's the last stage. And according to mid, the age range is seven years old and above. So this is where individuals can imagine how they are viewed by one or others. Okay? So that is something to do with the socialized, not just in the influence of their parents, but they socialize in what should be. Okay, the view of many people in a particular situation. Let's have an example. Let's say, for example, um, let's observe a child in terms of playing. Okay, let's say, for example, um, bahay bahayan. So the first stage is, of course, um, the imitation. Okay, so during this stage, the child will just to imitate. Okay, what he's seeing to the um, playmates. It could be the siblings or the parents. Okay, stage two, the child has the ability. The age is um, two to seven. Has the ability, let's say, to um, act. Okay, to rehearse the things that he witnessed on the first stage. Okay, and then the last one is the child is able to internalize not just the parent's perception or action, but in the general's population. So let's say, for example, they're playing. They play, let's say, Baha'i Baha'yan. Okay? So the child, let's say, is the father. And um, playing that is not just consider the things that he witnessed or replicates with the parents or the siblings or other playmates, but rather, okay, He's going to apply the things that are applicable in the generalized other on what is the generalized perception of a father. And then when they play this Baha'i Baha'yan, he's going to apply that. Okay? So not just the view of the parent, but also the view of the society in a particular role that he's playing. Okay? And another theory is Lawrence Kohlberg's theory. And he labeled this as um, moral theory of development. So if, if I'm not mistaken, you're going to encounter this in uh, theories of personality and um, developmental psychology. And Kohlberg proposed three levels with two stages each. Okay? So, morality it refers to the way people distinguish the good and bad, what is ethical or not, what is, let's say, necessary or not, and then the likes. Of course, moral development prevents people from doing unchecked urges, okay? Let's say, for example, we're able to think of a malicious things. Of course, as an individual, we're not going to act on it, right? Right ahead. We're going to process it. And imagine if, uh, people are just going to, you know, to act based on their urges. That will be chaotic. Our society will be uh, turned from utopia to dystopia, right? Okay. So the three levels, according to Kohlberg, are the following. We have pre-conventional, conventional, and post-conventional. Pre-conventional, this is the time that the individual or the child has no perception on what is good or what is right. In short, he is very, let's say, naive about the conventions and morality 
of the society. Okay? Now, pre-conventional or conventional rather as the second level. Now, in the second level, this is the time that the individual has the perception that his morality can make or break the society. That his morality can affect the order and at the same time the harmonious relationship in the society. And the post-conventional stage had it something to do that the individual behaves or has this, let's say, um, construed morality that are, let's say, self-chosen or according to their own volition. So which means the individual is free to choose his or her own convention that is free from the norms or free from the um free from society's um let's say society's imposed norms or morality and according to Kohlberg many individual will fall in um pre-conventional and conventional but not in the post-conventional stage so limited people is able to you know be in this kind of stage okay but i guess you're going to study that more uh, detailed in your developmental psychology class now another individual here is uh, carol gilligan now he agrees with kohlberg's theory but in a way it is what gender bias because solely Kohlberg only studies male participants or subjects in the research. But how about the female? Okay, so Carol Gilligan is asking for, uh, let's say, equality. Or let's say, um, woman empowerment. Okay? But if we're going to read the module, the research is very outdated. It is not actually not in the context of the present situation. Because right now, the society really don't care about your gender in terms of your social roles, about your socialization, about your jobs, about what are you going to do, okay? So way back before, the, um, or in the history, a female is not allowed to go to school. They're just going to marry and doing the house chores and in child rearing. And the male will going to go to work and be the breadwinner of the family. But right now, that is totally different. Okay? For some set up, let's say for some family, it can be true. But um, the new trend right now is that both the mother and father, okay, they are both working. Or sometimes vice versa. The, the, the male or the father is um, the one who's doing the house chores and the female okay, it's going, let's say, out for work. So it depends upon the setup of the family. But what I'm trying to say is that in our generation, this research is outdated. That is no longer, let's say, applicable to us. Okay? But however, during their time, Kohlberg and Gilligan's uh, theory are totally correct. But you cannot put that in our present context. Okay? Now, socialization is important because it is critical to both individuals and the societies they belong to. So why? Teaching culture to new members 
as how society preserves itself. And of course, because society is able to preserve itself in this manner, okay, that culture is being transcended from this generation and to the next generation or to other generations. And the culture must be transmitted to those who join the society for the society to survive. So socialization is also important to individuals. And social interaction let us see ourselves through the eyes of others. Thus, we learn who we are and how we fit into the society. Through socialization, we learn about culture and language too. And without it, we have no self. And this is totally true. And according to the old dictum, no man is an island. We really need others to really understand ourselves. And we are in a society that, of course, we cannot live alone. Or let's say we cannot be successful just in our own. No. Society in other people has a huge impact. And no one is self-made. Okay? Name it. No one is self-made. In terms of ideas, beliefs, opinions, in a way it is um, unconsciously affected by society. And the way you understand yourself, okay, again, unconsciously, is sometimes heavily affected by the society. Now, socialization is expedited by agents of socialization. So we have two categories, okay? So we have the social group agents and the institutional agents. Okay, social group agents are usually the source of our first socialization. Of course, these are our parents, siblings, extended family, peers, and in the likes. And also, we have um, social institutions that are divided into two. We have the formal and informal. Formal social institutions, name it the government, hospitals, schools, workplace, etc., etc. And um, the informal institutions are the institutions for le uh, leisure, okay, the mass media, and then so and so forth. And interaction of these two agents of socialization are very, let's say, imperative in understanding of the self. It is simply because we are living both, okay, in, in social media, okay, we will live with social media, we live with our parents, with our family, with our peers. And the way we interact to, to these agents has a huge impact with the understanding of the self, okay? Maybe right now it is not that clear for you, but as you socialize more or let's say you interact more, the understanding of the self becomes clearer. And that is, in a way, beneficial in your part. Now, if we're going to look at the society in general, society has, let's say, a constructive and at the same time um, detrimental effects in the understanding of the self. Okay? Number one, Constructive because it helps us to navigate our life.
it helps us to give us, let's say, the information on how we're going to be ethical, to be moral, okay? How we're going to live our life, how we're going to go to school, how we're going to understand such information that could lead to the understanding of the self. How are we going to um, have a lifestyle that is pleasing to everyone? And what are, let's say, the socially acceptable and unacceptable behaviors? But the detrimental effects are also many. Okay? Uh, let's say, for example, in terms of, you know, fear, the death. If you're going to ask yourself about fear, what do you think is the usual answer? Number one would be the death of you or your loved ones. Why? Because the society will going to, to inform us that death actually is a sign of weakness, that death is actually a sign of failure, or death actually is a gloomy thing. Where in fact, if you're going to see the human development, death is an inevitable part of human development which means everyone is destined to death. And how are you going to fear something that is really existing? Right? But society will go on to tell you that this is a gloomy part. Okay? But actually, that is not. And that should not be, let's say, a fearful thing to us, but we should embrace it as an inevitable part of the self. And maybe, when you're able to resolve your fear in terms of that, then you can fully understand yourself. And the fully you understand yourself, the more that you're going to appreciate the life that you have. And you're not going to take it for granted. Another thing, the society will go in to tell us about um, the success. How are we going to, to be successful? It will go in to give you the parameters of success which I mentioned a while ago. Another thing that I mentioned a while ago is the perception of beauty, right? What is acceptable beauty and what is not? The society will go on to tell us that you need to be like the K-pop look, the American look, okay? The, the Barbie look, and then when you have it, you're cute, you're attractive, okay? But actually, that is not. And a lot of, let's say, more things, okay? Especially if you're in a capitalist um, country, okay? Now, what I'm trying to say here is that society has a good and bad effect to us. But out of, at the end of the day, you are the one who has the volition and, let's say, the mind and the brain to really filter all the society is trying to embed in our mind. Okay? So, when you eat a fish or a fish, you're not going to eat anything. Right? Of course, you're just going to choose. Okay? Especially yung laman, but not, let's say, yung yung tinek, the bones of the chicken. Ah, not the, the fish, rather. Okay? So, it's the same with what the society is trying to offer us in terms of understanding the self. Do not blame everything. Do not attribute everything to the self. You need to filter them. Okay? You, you need to, let's say, to be a, a semi-permeable in terms of the information that you can incorporate to the self. But not everything. Okay? 
so that at the end of the day, you can tell that yourself is not um, fully liberated but not fully detached from the society. It's a matter of, let's say, weighing. It's a balanced way of understanding it the self. You consolidate the society and you consolidate your own volition. And that is a healthy way in understanding the self. Okay? So that's it. So I do hope that you understand. And I encourage you to familiarize yourself with the proponent and their theories. You're going to encounter that with the uh, exams in the future. Okay? So right now, I want you to self-reflect and do some um, self-introspection um, on how you're going to view yourself in the eyes of others. You can ask your, let's say, parents, your friends, your family members, or you can go back to your uh, past, let's say, um, post in Instagram and in Facebook or in uh, Twitter and put them all together. How the sociological perspective impact yourself? Okay? So, we're done with philosophical. We're done with sociological. So that's it. So have a good day. Thank you.